0: Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. It was a Sabbath day and Jesus received an invitation. Obviously, it was an invitation from one of the Pharisees. If you notice, it says, in fact, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And this just reminds us that even though Jesus was the, uh, was an object to be attacked by many of the Pharisees, not all of them. And Jesus, can I just say this? Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees. He opposed them at different points when they came and contradicted his will and and God's word. But he didn't hate them. And even though there's going to be a confrontation at the house of this Pharisee, he didn't hate them. He accepted this invitation and went into this man's house to eat. But if you notice, it says there in verse 1, that they watched him closely. As a matter of fact, uh, Greek scholars will tell you that the wording here in the original language is is very dramatic. Um, uh, William Barclay said, the word used for watching is the word used for interested and sinister espionage. The idea is that Jesus was under scrutiny. Or maybe we should just look to what our good old Puritan friend John Trapp says. He always comes up with something dramatic. He says, they watched him as intently as a dog doth for a bone. And they wanted to sink their teeth into Jesus. Now, even though Jesus accepted this invitation, the Pharisees seems to have very deliberately set this up to be a trap for Jesus. They watched him very intently. They looked at the life of Jesus now. I I just feel compelled to add sort of a side point here because it's really not directly relevant to the text, but it's suggested by the text. Even as they intently watched the life of Jesus, you understand that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, people are looking at your life as well. You may not wish they were looking at your life, but they are. And matter of fact, truth be told, isn't this the reason why many of us are um, very quiet about our Christian beliefs because we know that other people will watch our lives. Well, can I just say you need to be bold enough to say uh, I'm going to live a Christian life that people can look at and they won't see that it's perfect. You don't need to be perfect to be a good example. Because when you mess up, all you have to do is be an example of repentance. You don't have to be perfect You have to be real and have the power of Jesus genuinely working in your life, just as they watched Jesus. So people watch us. I like the way that Paul phrased it in Second Corinthians chapter three. He explained that we are letters being written by Jesus. And he said that all men read these letters and said these letters are not written with ink, but with the Holy Spirit. And they're not written on paper, but on our own hearts. Your life is the only Bible that some people are going to read. Look, we tell them to read the Bible, and I hope that they do read the Bible, and we want to bring them the Bible. But there's many people say, listen, I want to see it real in your life before I turn to the book that you're telling me about. In any regard, more germane to the point, Jesus is here at this dinner party. They're watching him very closely. Now, why are they watching him? Look at this. Wow. Verse two. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. I'll talk about dropsy in just a moment. Doesn't that sound like one of those made-up diseases? Uh, doctor, is it a real disease? Have you ever seen a case of dropsy? Really? I'm shocked. Okay, oh, congestive. Okay, okay, very good. Yeah, Due to congestive heart failure. Okay. Don't think about your cholesterol numbers or anything right now. Now, what I find significant about this is that this man was a ruler among the Pharisees, correct? He invited Jesus. The important point is this man with dropsy didn't just wander in. He was deliberately invited. Why was he deliberately invited? Why were they so intently watching Jesus? It was a setup, wasn't it? And and really, that's sort of fascinating because they knew something they knew that if they brought this obviously afflicted man into the presence of Jesus, that Jesus would be so stirred with compassion that he would do something about it. Really, it's quite a compliment to Jesus, isn't it? You can't bring an obviously afflicted man into the presence of Jesus without him saying, I'm going to meet that man's need." And so it was an entire setup. Well, Let let me read again, starting at verse 2. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" But they kept silent, and they took him, excuse me, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, first of all, verse two, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now. I, I keep referring to the words back in the original language. Look, I, I want you guys to know, and I'm just sort of a full disclosure statement. I, I can't really read or study. I'm certainly not good at New Testament Greek. I have a, a, a passing familiarity with it. I'm certainly not a Greek scholar. But, but I know how to read the guys who are really good Greek scholars. So when I tell you this thing from the Greek or that thing from the Greek, I don't want anybody to get the idea that, you know, I'm there with parchments in my office pouring over things. But but really, I mean, I value the input from good Greek scholars. And one of them says at this particular point that this idea or this word for dropsy comes from the Greek words, water and countenance, because the disease often made a person look bloated in the face. And that's why that ancient Greek word is a combination of those two words, water and face or countenance. So what happens to this man, who's obviously afflicted, without trying to sound cute about it, it was written on his face, the problem that he had. And Jesus looked at the man and what? It says very powerfully there, and Jesus answering in verse 3. You know what's remarkable about that? Nobody asked him a question. In other words, he answered the situation. He looked over it and just master over all of it. He saw the situation. Oh, I get it. Mr. Ruler of the Pharisees, you invited me into your home. Then you invited this guy that probably normally you'd never have a thing to do with such an obviously afflicted man. You'd keep him as far away as you possibly could. But you just invited him because I would be here because you wanted to see some fireworks explode. And it's almost as if Jesus said, you want fireworks? I'll give you some fireworks. But notice this. First, he asks a question, verse three, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, the issue wasn't healing directly. I find it kind of interesting that there seems to be no question in the text that Jesus could and indeed would heal the man. The whole issue was that it was on the Sabbath and his accusers believed that since healing was work in their definition, and God forbade work on the Sabbath, that it was against God's command to heal somebody on the Sabbath. But let me make it very clear, that is not true. I just want you guys to know that in all these sort of Sabbath controversies that Jesus entered into, he never broke the law of God, never. What he did challenge and sometimes openly break were the human interpretations layered on top of the word of God. And so God never, ever said that it was sin to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Never. He did say that it was wrong to work, but obviously Jesus knew, being the Lord of the Sabbath, that what he was doing was not a violation of the Sabbath. And if you notice then, what does it say in verse 4? It says, but they kept silent. I love that. They had no answer for what Jesus just said. So Jesus just, you guys tell me, is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And the question just hangs thickly in the air. They don't know what to say. They keep absolutely silent. So what does Jesus do? Verse four, he took him and healed him and let him go. You know what I love about this? There's no ceremony, there's no hocus pocus, there's no superstitious sort of ritual. Jesus sees the man and he heals him. And by the way, since in all likelihood this man's affliction was literally written on his face, we would have reason to believe that the man's appearance immediately changed. You could look and say, that man is healed. He walked in here looking one way. He's walking out of here looking another way. Everybody can see that this man who was once had this this sort of disfiguring ailment that affected his appearance, he looks completely normal now. Jesus healed him in a remarkable display of his power, of his authority over all sickness and disease. And then I like this. Did you notice that at verse 4? It says, and he let him go. You almost have the feeling that the man was like, "Can I just get out of here? This is really uncomfortable." You know, I know I I don't know why I was invited to this thing. I I I hope he already had something to eat. You know, he said, "Can I just please leave? Thank you very much, Jesus." Jesus, okay, fine, you can go. But now, verse five. Then he answered them, saying which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Jesus gave a brilliant response to the situation. They bring the man as a challenge. Jesus heals him but only after asking that vital question, is it sin? Is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? So he lets them go. He heals the man. He lets him go. And then while the situation is still tense, as the Pharisees or religious leaders there are sort of gnashing their teeth against Jesus, feeling you lawbreaker, you broke the Sabbath. Jesus just breaks the whole situation by asking a very important question. He just simply asked them, which of you having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into the pit will not immediately pull him out on? the Sabbath day. You guys will help one of your domesticated animals that help you with the farm work. You'll help that animal on the Sabbath day. Won't you help a man who needs help as well? If they said no, no, we would never do that. They would show that they loved their farm animals more than they loved people, which, by the way, might have been true. They couldn't answer no, but they didn't want to answer yes. Verse six says they could not answer him regarding these things. It may be that one of the things that confounded them so much was that Jesus might have been appealing to something good within them. This is what I mean. Jesus might have been saying to them, you guys help your farm animals that are in trouble on the Sabbath. That's a good thing. I don't want you to be cruel to you. The, 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 the answer isn't stop helping your farm animals on the Sabbath. You guys already do that, and that's good. Now, add to it compassion that you would show to a fellow human being. It's a very powerful appeal, and there was nothing that they could say to. it. Now, again, in the midst of all this scene where the... I Don't you think that the tension is a little bit thick right there? I hope that they had already finished eating by this time because it just would have made it a little more unpleasant in the midst of it. But anyway, with all the tension in the air, then Jesus sort of ratcheted up to a whole other level, verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, okay, what follows, starting at verse 8, is a parable. It's a simple story that illustrates a spiritual truth that's meant to explain that spiritual truth especially to those who have some sort of spiritual perception. So Jesus is going to illustrate this with these words. And he says, verse seven, he did this when he noted how they chose the best places. You see, at the home of this ruler of the Pharisees, Jesus noticed how people strategically placed themselves so that they would sit in the best places. That is the places of most honor. You see, in Jesus's day, the seating arrangement at a dinner showed a definite order of prestige or honor. The most honored person sat in a particular place. The second most honored person sat in a particular place. The third most honored person sat in a particular place. So there was a very real ranking that went. Now, there's something like this at our kind of wedding things. I mean, there's different tables and I suppose there's a proximity to the front or whatever. But but again, this was such a big deal in the ancient culture of the first century because um, it it, it was the most uh, important social occasion that anybody normally went to was a wedding. It was a time where social order was established and recognized and approved. And so Jesus looks all around and he looks at it and he goes, listen, I see how you guys, you know, you're elbowing a person. No, that's my chair. No, I want to sit there. I want to sit in a place of greater honor, this or that. Jesus observed all that, and then he told him this story, starting at verse 8. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And when he who invited you and him come to say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. You can picture the scene in your mind, can't you? There's everybody sort of jockeying around and you're, you're, you're there. That person, you kind of want to sit in a prestigious place because you want to show the whole village that you're really an actually important person. And so at this setting, that is the most important social occasion in normal Jewish life. It says right there, you're invited to the wedding feast. And Jesus says in verse eight, do not sit down in the best place. Why? Because if you take that most honored seat for yourself, you may ask to be removed if the host would rather have someone else sit there. See, if you jockeyed for this position. Oh, I want to sit here. And everybody will say, well, look how much the bride and groom honor this one. Wow, they're in a prestigious seat. I didn't think they were such close relation. Isn't this wonderful? But then the master of the feast comes along and says, no, 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 I'm sorry, sir. You're sitting here. No, go go sit down over there. What embarrassment, right? You have to get up and you slink over to your bad seat and you sit down and you probably have a worse seat than ever before, right? Because everything else is filled. Now, we don't have the same same exact customs illustrating social standing by seating arrangements at a wedding. Yet, are there not constant occasions in modern life where someone can display their own sense of self-importance, their own pride, their own high opinion of themselves. I, I think that social media has made this much worse. I think social media has given us an opportunity to exalt ourselves in front of other people in a way that we just didn't have the opportunity before. Now, people are going to say, all right, I'm not going to tweet anything for a week. No, that's not the idea. (laughs) But if you're consciously using social media in a way to show everybody else how wonderful and amazing you are, would you just talk to the Lord about it and see if this parable doesn't apply to you? There there are almost countless occasions in daily life where we have the opportunity to exalt ourselves and and just say, hey, everybody, look how wonderful I am. And, you know, we we need to be able to resist that impulse, don't we? Now, I'm not denying that you're wonderful. You may really well be. I'm not saying that you are. But I'm saying whether you're wonderful or not, that's not the issue. Here's the issue. Are you going to exalt and promote yourself or are you going to let the Lord do it for you? Now, I have to admit, this is a very delicate matter, and it's one that I think is difficult to judge for other people. Can we just resolve ourselves to this? Let's just judge it for ourselves. I'm not going to stand back and judge whether or not yours is just telling people good things from the table of Jesus that he pours into your heart and on. And, and judging between that and being, oh, you're such a proud self exalter. I'm not going to make that judgment for you. But but I will endeavor to make it for myself. Because I think so much of this is bound up within the heart within the mind, within the soul of the person. And it's possible that two people could do exactly the same thing. And one of them do it in just in a spirit of celebration. Hey, I want everybody to know this. And another person do it in an attitude of, I want to exalt myself and show everybody how wonderful I am. I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well on this, but I hope you get the point. You see, because he says there in verse 9, and then you begin with shame... To take the lowest place. You see, Jesus reminded us of the shame that often comes with self-exaltation. And when we allow others to promote us and lift us up, especially when we allow God to promote us or lift us up, then we don't have the same danger of being exposed as someone who has exalted himself. And all I can say is that this is what I want for my life. Whatever platform, whatever prominence, whatever place that the Lord gives me, I want to be able to know that the Lord has given it to me and that I haven't struggled to achieve it myself. The the, the Bible reminds us that we should not play the self-promotion game. We should do our work hard. We should do it unto the Lord and let God raise us up. I remember as a very young Christian hearing this passage and it just stuck with me. And I hope it's had some impact on my life. Psalm 75 verses six and seven say this for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts the other. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what should we do in contrast This is precious verses 10 and 11. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, that's wonderful. Jesus said, no, no, approach it with a different attitude altogether. Instead, verse 10, go and sit down in the lowest place. Instead of scheming to get the highest place, just go find a low place to sit and say, I'm going to sit down there. And then the master of the feast is going to do what? He's going to come. Well, you don't belong here. Come up higher. And that is much, much sweeter. You see, when we're at the lower place, we're not there just to show everybody Please see how low I am and how humble I am. But we just recognize there's something beautiful and glorious. In just humble, low service before the Lord. I just got to say, there is something powerful about being content in whatever place God shows you to have. It's as if Jesus is teaching here from what Paul would later on write on in Philippians chapter two, where he says that in this lifestyle, we should be in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. That's a very powerful thought. And how sweet it is. If you just very naturally, very unassumingly take that humble place and in verse 10, He comes along and says, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. You know, when you joyfully embrace the lower place, you're not filled with such a high opinion of yourself that you think, well, I don't belong here. I really belong up there. Then if the master of the feast comes and raises you to a more prominent position, it's all the more satisfying. Like it says in verse 10, you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table. When I lived in Germany, there was a couple of years, I, I always did a lot of travel back and forth to the States, but there was a couple of years when I seemed to do a lot. And, and I, I did it with one airline, and I got up to their highest mile status. Now, you know what that means? Free upgrades. And like on, on, I don't know what it was, four, three or four round-trip transatlantic flights, I got upgraded up to business class. Oh, my gosh, that is so good. You cannot believe how great that is. It's, it's just wonderful. It just makes you run. I mean, they, the best, before you even take off, they bring out warm nuts. They're warmed up. I don't know why they warm them up, but it's just great. And anything you want to eat or drink, it's just on and on, and all the entertainment stuff you stretch, it's great, okay? You know what? I, I had to emotionally prepare myself for when the following year I lost my status. <laughs> and there I am back. You know, now it's not like every time I upgraded, but you always hoped. And sometimes you get upgraded even without using your – anyway, it was great. But I had to emotionally prepare myself for going back with just the normal people, And I tell you, I had to think of it this way. I really had to think, David, be thankful. Here you are, a miracle of air travel. You're sitting in a seat. It's not hard. You're not sitting on a hard bench for for 15 hours. They're going to bring you food. Usually I can get an aisle seat. It's comfortable. And then I think, thank the Lord that you're not really tall or really big. You fit comfortably in an airline seat, which I think of that, especially looking some at you. I go, man. And I had to really. Well, no, really. Some of you people are just man. It's like I, I look over at Dave Newton here. Dave Newton, don't I fit much better into an airline seat than you do? I do. So I mean, it's just it's just logic. And and I had to just gear myself to, you know what, Lord, this is fine. This is good. And. and God helping me, it was just, it was just okay. It was fine. And I don't even think, I think about it a little bit, but not that much. <laughs> now, in the midst of all of that, do you know how wonderful it is? If, if your mind is prepared for coach and they bring you up to business or first class. Now, what's the problem? If your mind is prepared for first class and they send you back to coach, it's the worst. It, you just, it, you can't imagine how terrible it is. Now, listen, in the Christian life, especially in Christian ministry, there is something wonderful about knowing that God has raised you up instead of you raising yourself up. And today, more than ever, are the abilities for people to scheme and arrange and market and pump and promote and do all of that to to lift up their name or their prominence or all the rest of it. And again, I'm not going to judge any other person regarding what they do with their life or with their ministry. But but I feel that God wants me to have a very light hand on these things. I feel uncomfortable when people introduce me before I'm going to speak. And I'm very much based on this principle. It's really selfish on my part. I don't want people standing up before I speak saying what a wonderful speaker I am or what a wonderful preacher I am, because it builds the expectation level of the audience too high. How much better if somebody just came up and said, well, here's some guy. I hope he has something good for us. And then I can come in with low expectations and bless him even more. (laughs) But you see, I I need to deal with this in my heart. And I'm sure that that in your life, in your arena, there's some place where you need to deal with this as well. Because please look at this principle in verse 11. It's very powerful. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted when we seek to take honor to ourselves, we're always going to be humbled. If not on earth, then we'll be humbled in some way in eternity. And and the promise for exaltation for the humble and the humiliation of the proud, it's ultimately fulfilled in eternity, but it's meaningful for right here, right now. See, we don't have Those same cultural situations for wedding feasts that Jesus spoke of back then. But again, we still have the idea where we want to grasp for a certain position or status. And we need to learn how to how to let go of all that grasping. And just say, Lord, I'm going to do my work before you. I'm going to live my life before you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of my reputation. So listen, we. We need to find and I need to find. I'll just say this for myself. I need to find and walk in the glory of the humble place. And enjoy it with such satisfaction. When and if God chooses to lift you up. When we get our own position, either through outward or or subtle manipulation, we can even say the words, well, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. But you know what? Deep in your heart, you know, I conducted a brilliant uh, guerrilla marketing campaign. And how do you know? I always remember the words of George MacDonald. He said this. In whatever a man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. I don't want to be a miserable success. I wanted to know that it came from the hand of the Lord. Now, one more thought about this word. Uh, Verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't Jesus absolutely the perfect fulfillment of this? Didn't he, who had every right to exalt himself, but he didn't. He humbled himself, and now where is he lifted up? He's lifted up to be the name above every name. Really, what Jesus is saying, what... It's almost that Jesus is too humble to say it, but he lived it. Jesus is saying here, be like me. Jesus is calling me to look at him and say, I want to be like Jesus, who didn't exalt himself, but just in due time, in whatever way was fitting, the Lord exalted him. Verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Don't you think this was a pretty bold thing for Jesus to say to the guy who invited him to dinner? Jesus looks over all the people in the room. Now, remember The guy with dropsy, first of all, he doesn't have it anymore. Secondly, he left. And so Jesus looks out across the room. And what is it? It's all just wonderful people. It's all just the beautiful people there at this party. And what did Jesus say? He said, when you give a dinner, do not ask your friends. Now, he spoke this specifically to the one who invited him because he saw that he chose his guests from a sense of exclusion and pride. His main idea is what can you do for me if I invite you to my dinner? He didn't do it out of a sense of who can I do good unto in inviting them to this meal? By the way, when Jesus said, do not ask. The actual sense there in the ancient grammar is do not habitually ask. Jesus did not forbid you from having dinner with just some friends. He does not forbid you. This is what he forbids you from. Only ever having dinner with just your friends. Do not habitually ask just your special favorites or whatever. Why? Verse 12, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. You got to understand, too, that a dinner invitation in that culture meant something different than in our culture. There was I don't know exactly how to say it. There was a very real economic benefit to being invited over for dinner because people lived on very narrow margins every day. They just parceled out enough food. If you were invited over dinner to somebody's house, that was a day that you didn't have to buy food for yourself and you could probably eat more than you normally ate. I mean, it was really a cause for celebration. They were really giving something to you. Now, now we live in our modern age with such abundance. You know, we just don't think in those terms. But but back then it was a real thing. And and many times you'd say, well, I'm only going to invite them over for dinner. If they'll invite me back, it'll equal out, you know, on the balance sheet. Again, we, we don't think that way financially in our day and age. But back then it was a real concern because, again, people lived on such thin margins But the principle remains the same. How about this? Jesus told us not to associate people, associate with people, I should say, only on the basis of what they can do for us. But I suppose it's easy for us to do that, isn't it? For us to look around with our circle of associates, each and every one of us, and we say, you know what? Pretty much the people that I hang out with, I only hang out with them because they can do something for me. When's the last time that you said, no, I'm going to hang out with that person. I'm going to draw them into my circle, not because they can do anything for me, but because in Jesus name, I can do something for them. And matter of fact, I would just say this. There is something wonderful in giving a gift that can never be repaid. Isn't there something powerful in that? When you give a gift to somebody else that there's just no way that they could ever repay it. There's something just pure and good and beautiful about that. And this is some of the more blessing that Jesus spoke of when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you understand that? That Jesus said there's a way to be more blessed to give without thought of receiving back. And I was thinking about this and. and kicking it around in my head here this week. It made me realize something, something kind of clicked. It triggered. I never thought this way before, but I just thought in these terms. That helps to explain. The incredible joy God has in extending salvation to us. Do, do you know how much God rejoices when somebody comes to him? Now, you, you know that verse where it says, uh, so the angels rejoice or so, um, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven. That's exactly how it's phrased. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven. Do, do you understand that in that particular phrase, it doesn't say that the angels rejoice. It says that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Well, if there's rejo- who's the one rejoicing in the presence of the angels? God himself. L- Ladies and gentlemen, when a sinner comes to repentance, it's not the angels who are throwing a party, although I'm sure they join in. It's God throwing the party. Why? Because he, more than any other being in the universe, knows the amazing joy in giving a gift that can never be repaid. When he bestows salvation upon that believing heart, he says, they will never be able to repay me for this. And I love to give it to them. Isn't it beautiful? As you and I, people made in his image, He allows us to share in some of that joy by having a heart that says, Lord, I'm going to look for somebody that I can give something unto and they have nothing to give back to me. Now, you're not going to be on the short end of the stick if you do that. Look at verse 14, and this is where we'll close. He says, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This kind of living is going to cost you something. If you give to people who can't repay you back, it's going to cost you something. But you know what? You're still going to come out ahead way ahead. Why? It'll be repaid to you at the resurrection of the just you will be repaid. Now, this is only going to make sense to you if you live life with an eternal perspective. If eternity doesn't matter to you, then this doesn't make any sense to you. But if eternity is precious to you, then this makes a lot of sense. And you say, Lord, I get it. I get it. I get how it's worth it for me to give now to someone who can't repay me so that I can receive something for eternity. You know, one of the things we do at this church, we've done it in the past and we do it in the present. and I know we're going to do it in the future. Is, you know, organize works where we go out and do you know, something like a water project or something like an orphanage uh, for people in more disadvantaged countries. And isn't one of the glorious things about that? They can never repay us. I mean, kind of in a cold, calculating. There's nothing that they can do for us in return for what we've done for them. But isn't part of that? It, what's make it, that's what makes it feel so good to do it. But in the end, we say, oh, yes, Lord, we will be repaid. You absolutely promise that we will in eternity, and we trust in that." It reminds us that we will never be the loser. When we give after God's pattern of generosity. Now, of course, I think this means resources, but don't restrict it to that for a moment. You know, it's a beautiful thing to give your love to somebody who can't repay you. To give your forgiveness to somebody who can't repay you. To give your attention to somebody who can't repay you. You get the picture, don't you? Of course, it has to do with resources, but don't for a moment let it end there. It goes far beyond it. Father, um, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this congregation. Because I know that you've done a work in their hearts. Where, where, Lord, so many of them, they love to give without the idea of being repaid. And so, Lord, I, I don't pray that you would start this um, heart or attitude among us. Lord, I believe it's already present. But Lord, I'll be bold enough to pray that you increase it. We want it more and more. And Lord, being made in your image, we want to live life with that wonderful joy of knowing that we've given gifts to people that can never be repaid. Give us that kind of heart. Show us how to walk in humility. Pour out your grace upon us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.